As I was wrestling with this text this week and kind of trying to sum it up and how I think, how can I communicate the big idea, I decided to steal a title from a friend uh, who wrote a book. His name is Bob Sorge. He wrote a book called, It's Not Business, It's Personal. And his book is all about the fact that Jesus sees his bride personally. Like Jesus takes the church personally, and he starts his book out with a uh, scene uh, from a movie from years back called You've Got Mail. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this film. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are in this film. And in the movie, Meg Ryan owns a little kind of a boutique uh, bookstore. It's a small one. And uh, uh, Tom Hanks owns like a big Barnes & Noble kind of, you know, big chain store. And he's putting other small businesses out of business. And he moves his store into her neighborhood. And her little bookstore is everything she has, all her money's in it, it's her, you know, inheritance, it's like everything, right? And, uh, and so she's really upset about this new big bookstore coming into town. And unbeknownst to both of them, they start a relationship kind of talking back and forth online, and they don't know who the other person is. And as she's asking for some business advice, he go, goes into a little diatribe from a scene from the movie Godfather, and he says, what you got to do is, remember, it's not personal, it's business, and he says, it's got to be a mantra. You got to have chant this mantra. You got to get ruthless. You got to get mean. It's not personal, it's business. And so the story goes on. He actually finds out who she is. He's like, oh no. But he also realizes he's fallen in love with her. Finally, they know, they both know what's going on. And he goes, look, it, it was never personal because her bookstore goes out of business. And he says, it, it was never personal, it was, it was just business. And Meg Ryan says, what does that even mean? It just means it wasn't personal to you. It was always personal to me because whatever anything else is, it ought to begin by being personal. And Tom Hanks is speechless. But when we get to the text today, Paul is going to get real personal, and here's what he's going to say. Basically, this isn't business. This is personal. I mean, Paul had learned this in a dramatic way that Jesus takes his church personally. Remember in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus. He's going to get some Christians and throw them in prison. He's got permission to go and do that. And on the way, a light comes from heaven. He gets knocked down on the ground and he looks up and the Lord speaks to him. Acts 9 verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you? I don't even know who you are. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait, wait, what? Saul was persecuting the church, not Jesus. But Jesus takes his church so seriously. He takes his body, he takes his bride so personally that what happens to them happens to him. See, this isn't business to Jesus. This is personal. In fact, the purpose that you're here this morning isn't to be part of a business. Jesus isn't meeting us this morning by his Holy Spirit for us to make a business transaction. You know, you praise me, I'll bless you. You know, you, you tithe, I'll provide for you. No, this is personal to Jesus. And it was personal to Paul, and it's personal to me. I hope it's personal to you. Now, to really understand why this is so personal, why Paul is so emotional in this text, why he's so passionate, you got to remember how we got here. In the book of Galatians, remember when the, when the gospel very first went out, the first believers were Jewish believers, but as the gospel continued to go, it met with Gentile believers, right? And so a number of Gentiles became Christians. Uh, Paul went through Galatia. He started these churches. He moved on. But after he was gone, some of the Jewish believers came back to the Gentile believers and said, listen, glad you have faith in Jesus, but you also need to follow the law to be justified. And then they pulled out their knife and said, you need to be circumcised. <laughs> to which the guys were like, dude, Paul never said anything about that. 
And they said, well, you know, Paul's kind of a B apostle. He's not really an A apostle. He didn't hang out with Jesus, you know, and he's just trying to make it easier for you to get in. Now, the problem with all of this was it wasn't just that they were questioning Paul's apostleship. They were questioning the gospel. And they were rebuilding the wall between Jew and Gentile that the gospel had destroyed. And so Paul wrote back quickly with white-hot emotion, with laser-precise logic, and he says, if somebody's preaching another gospel, they can be eternally condemned. So we said from week one, it's pretty important to know what the gospel is, and we said the gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means the good news that Jesus is Lord. It's not advice. The gospel isn't advice. It's news that something has happened, and that something is Jesus is Lord. And this was political dynamite in those days because if Jesus was Lord, that means Caesar wasn't. And and it was kind of summed up this way. Paul sums it up this way in the beginning, Galatians 1, verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ, there it is, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And what we learn is that through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he has rescued us from the present evil age and taken us into the age to come so that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven by God, we can be accepted by God, we can be declared righteous by God, even adopted by God. And we can call God Abba. And we learned last week, Abba is not just, you know, a Swedish pop group from Stockholm. It means my father. The gospel says that we're accepted by God, we're forgiven by God, we're justified, we're adopted by God, not because we were really good and deserved it, not because we really poured it out. You know, I'm really preaching hard today, I'm really trying to pour it out for him, and that's why I'm accepted. No, it's not because of any of our good works. It's not because we read our Bible or prayed or served or voted. It's not even because we followed the law of God. It's all because of grace. It's all because of what Jesus said. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing is our acceptance with God. And and if you had to sum up the entire book of Galatians in a single phrase, it would be this. Jesus is enough. See, the real Galatian error is that by adding adherence to the law, to faith in Jesus, to be saved, they were saying the cross wasn't enough. They were saying the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough to make us acceptable to God. The cross was good, but it wasn't sufficient. Jesus, we think you're cool, man. You're great. We we appreciate you, Jesus. We appreciate you, but we're going to have to add to what you did because the cross wasn't enough. And what Paul has been saying up to this point in chapter 4 is you can have a relationship with God based on what Jesus did. And the fruit of that is freedom, or you can try and have a relationship with God based on what you do, your performance, and the fruit of that will be slavery, just like when you were in paganism. This is what he's saying. Adding adherence to the law to faith in Jesus Christ to be justified by God is going back to slavery. And why are you doing that? You've been set free. Why are you acting like slaves? That is why Paul is getting emotional. He's passionate. Why? Because this ain't business. This is personal. And there's two things in the text that we read that I want you to see that I think will help us. If we, if we understand these two things, I think we'll hear what the Spirit is trying to speak to us as a church right now. And the two things are these. Paul's passion and God's providence. Paul's passion and God's providence, we'll look at them in turn. First of all, Paul's passion. You see his passion throughout the whole book, but in this text, there's a crescendo of emotional language. 
In fact, one commentator says this section is seething with pathos, right? And it all starts with verse 12. I plead with you, I'm pleading with you, become like me because I became like you. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, when, when Paul went to them, he became like them. He adapted to their culture. He felt what they felt. He saw what they struggled with, and he felt it himself. He listened to their questions. Paul's strategy, wherever he went, was to incarnate into their culture. In fact, he describes his, his uh, strategy like this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. So Paul was just like Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't, you know, God didn't look down from heaven and go, look, here, I'm going to put a ladder and you guys try really hard to get up to me. No, he came for us. He took on human flesh in the incarnation. He incarnated himself. He had flesh and blood and Jesus had to go to the bathroom like everybody does. He took it. He became one of us. He breathed our air and he walked in our shoes and, 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 and he became one of us. Why? To save us. And what Paul is saying here is I go in the same way. To win some, I become light. I incarnate into that culture. Now, I want you to notice something, and it's incredibly important for us as we try to reach our culture here in Louisville. Paul was wonderfully flexible about some things and rigidly inflexible about others. Let me unpack what I mean by that. Paul was inflexible when it came to the gospel. Okay, he said, we're not putting up with any other gospel. There is no other, any other gospel is no gospel at all. Chapter one, you, he lets you know, I'm going to fight for it. I'll die for it. I, I, I'm, I'll confront the apostle Peter for it, right? And, and, and Paul says, if an angel from heaven comes, this is what Paul says. He says, if, if I'm preaching right now, and while I'm preaching, a light comes through and the, and the ceiling just crumbles in and an angel from heaven comes and this is bright light and we're like, what, what? You know, Alan, turn it down. Oh, it's an angel. And, and, and he says, look, I know he's preaching that you're saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus did on the cross, but really, it's about your performance. I need all the guys to line up to be circumcised. I need those of you who are wearing mixed fiber shirts. You know, you're going to have to change into 100% cotton. And, and, if, and if you don't have a parapet on your house, you need to go build it right away. You gotta fo- In other words, you got to follow the law. If an angel from heaven, Paul says, comes and teaches another gospel, Here's what we're going to do. Get my back because we're going to rush him. I'm going to run at him. I'm, I'm going to put him in a real naked, real naked chokehold or a guillotine or, or other Brazilian jiu-jitsu move. The point is, we're not flexible on the gospel. The gospel is the gospel and that doesn't change, right? And we don't, cha- we don't ever change the core, never, ever, ever. But on things that are on the periphery, non-essentials, like what clothes you wear, like how you dress, like what music you listen to, like what food you eat or what language you speak or cultural traditions, Paul adapted to the culture he was in. Listen, one mark of being thoroughly transformed by the gospel is that you love the gospel and you're not going to budge on it. And at the same time, you're remarkably flexible about non-essentials. People who are transformed by the gospel can adapt to whatever culture they're in, but they make the core thing the core thing. A mark of another gospel 
If you're you're trying to be saved by your performance, by your works, the mark of that is you're going to be so insecure that you're going to take the details and you're going to demand that everybody does it your way. You need to sing the song the way I sing it. You need to preach this way. You need to dress this way. You need to eat this way. You need to listen to this music. You need to do communion this specific way. Why? Because you're trying to convince yourself that you're accepted. And if you try to justify yourself by performance, you will become legalistic. You'll get inflexible and rigid about the wrong things. And when that happens, you're not living in the freedom of the gospel. Tim Keller tells a story about some missionaries, and I think they're from his denomination. He's a Presbyterian guy. And they were on the west coast of Africa, uh, and they were in a certain people group there. Uh, and they, and they, these, there was five guys that they went, and they were going to preach the gospel to this people group and, and give it to them. Uh, and nothing was happening. They were telling them, nothing was happening. There was no fruit. And, it was, and they were, people weren't even listening to them, and they didn't understand why. So the, they bring in a kind of a veteran missionary. He comes in, and he says, well, what's going on? And they said, well, in this culture, the way the culture is, when you get in a group, first of all, you don't sit in rows like, you know, we good Western white Presbyterians do, he said. Uh, they, they sit in a circle. But we brought them in. We set them in rows. And then in their culture, the elderly people speak first. It was a culture that really respected elders. Um, and, and the older I get, the more I dig cultures that respect elders. I don't know. This is weird how this is happening to me, right? Like, I, like I, that's right. That's right. Respect your elders. Yeah. And in this culture, they, so you would let them speak first, right? And so, and so the veteran missionary says, well, are, are you doing that with them? And they go, oh, no, we would never let somebody who's not a Christian yet say anything in our meeting because that's not the way you do it. And, and, and the veteran missionary goes, wait a second, how did Jesus preach to people? Didn't he talk to people who were not yet believers? They ask him a question, and didn't a lot of Jesus sermons come out of dialogue with somebody who was not yet a believer? And they were like, you mean we can do it that way? And he was like, oh, goodness, yes. Because the Bible doesn't say exactly what the order of service has to be. But it's clear on the gospel. See, when you are clear on the gospel and you're getting all of your approval and your acceptance and your justification from God because of what Jesus did, because of the finished work of Christ, then you're free not to get bent out of shape about little stuff. By contrast. When you attempt to get your justification from God on the basis of your performance, one of two things is going to happen. Either number one, if you're doing really well, like and you're actually doing it, and, and if things are going well, you will become insufferably right, self-righteous. And you've been around people like that, right, who think they won their own salvation, and they're doing pretty good. Things are going pretty good for them, and they think they won. They thought they saved themselves. So they get very judgmental, very critical, insufferable. They suck all the oxygen out of the room. But on the other hand, if you're trying to win your salvation by your performance and you're not doing so well, which is actually what's eventually going to happen sooner or later, the other thing it will lead to is you will be filled with despair. Why? Because it's all on you. Only the gospel sets you free both from self-righteousness on one hand and despair on the other. Paul knew that. That's why he's so passionate here. That's why he wanted the Galatians and us to be free from despair and self-righteousness and By contrast, filled with joy. Oh, that's why he says, verse 15, what happened to your joy? I know some translations translate that your blessedness, and and, and the Greek word can go both ways. It can mean blessedness or or joy. And, And so what Paul is saying is, man, 
When you accepted the pure gospel, you were filled with joy. I remember you. Remember how you were back then? Remember when you got saved? Remember the joy? What happened? And I could ask the same question to some of you today. What happened to your joy? Remember, remember how you were when you got saved? Remember when you realized that your sins were gone? That Jesus had said you are right. He declared you righteous. Remember that people couldn't hold you back from talking about Jesus. What happened? And he's reminding them. He says, look, I don't want your joy to be stolen. But that's what happens when you leave the gospel. I mean, I want to ask some of you. Did the pandemic have the power to steal your joy? Does politics have the power to steal your joy? Not if you're centered on the gospel, it doesn't. Joy. It comes because of the gospel. We're going to find out in the next chapter. It's a fruit of the spirit. And and the spirit comes as a result of the gospel. I got to go to the next point. But before I move on to the next point, I want you to see that you can see Paul's passion most clearly when you compare his motivation to those of the false teachers of the circumcision. Verse 17, he says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. So here's what was happening. The false teachers were trying to build their fan base. So, so let this in. It seems as if these false teachers are trying to earn their own acceptance by God because everybody has a need to be accepted, right? They wanted to be accepted. So it seems as if they were serving people not because they were already accepted by God, but in order to try to win God's acceptance. Now listen, that is a temptation that every single pastor I have ever met has had to wrestle with at some point. And not just pastors. Anyone ever involved in ministry of any kind on any level has wrestled with this. We might call it salvation by ministry. And it's the view, not normally verbalized out loud, but it's screaming in the heart that I have to do things for God in order for God to like me. I gotta pour myself out. I gotta do, I gotta pour my, I gotta do everything. I gotta be involved in everything in my heaven, everything. I gotta do everything in order for God to justify me. To say I'm okay. And listen, if that's you here today, I want you to hear me. Hear me. God loves you more than anything you ever do for him. He loves you. He wants you. And you are already accepted because of what Jesus did, not because of how you are doing ministry. So what we do is, after we realize that, then out of love, out of gratitude for what he's already done, now we obey, we serve, we give, we go. But it's out of an overflow of our relationship with God that leads us to that. Not in order to earn it. Oh, If you'll just let that in, the freedom that comes from that. Because there's some, there's some of you here today, ah, my heart goes out to you because I used to be you. It, it, was, it was this Sunday two years ago, on this Sunday, first Sunday of August, that my sabbatical was announced. Because I was dying 
because everything, I was trying to earn everything. And I knew the gospel in my head, but somehow it hadn't got in here in a way where I could really realize it. And so I, I remember driving to church that Sunday because I had to. And some of you, that, you, you come to church, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to. No, you don't. You know what? I drove to church this morning full of joy. Listen. Not because I had to. Because I get to. I get to. You know why? Because if this service goes really well, Jesus loves me. And if you don't say amen enough like you should, guess what? Jesus loved me. I'm accepted by God. No matter how this, if I didn't even come to church today, guess what? I'm accepted by God. I'm not justified by you. I'm not justified by me. I'm justified by him and what he says. So some of you who are on the edge of burnout because you think, I got to do, I got to. I want you to breathe deep. Just go ahead and say, no, I don't. You don't have to do it. And you preach the gospel to yourself until your language changes from I got to, to I get to. Woo. And when you get to, oh, now you're in freedom. And you're doing it just because you love Jesus. You ain't trying to get nothing out of nobody. Although I would like some more amens. But other than that, I don't need anything right now. Now, 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 look, now, look, compare that to the false teacher's motive. They're just trying to gather a fan base. And when, here's what Paul does. He goes from the language of friends to the language of family, or more specifically, a mother. Listen to what he says, verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Oh, you talk about personal. You talk about, there is nothing more personal than a mother giving birth to a child. Uh, and I know it's probably not good taste for, a, you know, a guy to use this as an illustration, but Paul didn't know that. You know, I, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying what he said. But I have been in the room four times when babies were born, and it's pretty personal. It's pretty personal. And what does he say? He says, I, the, listen, this ain't business. This is personal. Paul said, I, my goal is not to build up a fan base. I don't even care. Remember 1 Corinthians we said last week? He said, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. I only care what he thinks about me. Paul says, I'm not trying to build up a fan base. I want Christ to be formed in you. John Calvin put it this way. If ministers wish to do any good, let them labor to form Christ, not themselves, in their hearers. Listen, if my goal here is to build a fan base, I'm probably not going to hold to the core of the gospel. I, I'm probably not going to tell you the, the truth of the gospel because I, that would require me to say really hard things and that might make, you know, my approval rating drop. But if I really love you, because look, I'm already free. I don't need to get my acceptance from you. I already got accepted. You can walk out right now. Jesus loved me. And because of that, I, you know what? I'm free to tell you the truth. Oh. See, as long as you're bound by what other people think, you can't really love anybody. And because Paul was free, he said, I can, I can, I can love you enough to tell you what you don't want to hear. Because this ain't business. It's personal. 
And listen, that's not just a word for pastors. That's a word for parents. Listen, as parents, our goal is not to to be popular with our kids. Our goal is to have Christ formed in them. Oh, that's what we want. All right, that was... That was the first point. Some of you are going, oh, sweet Jesus. It, don't worry. It's okay. The second one is much shorter, okay? And there's only two, not three. So there's that. The second thing is God's providence. Now, I read that real quickly at the very beginning, but did you catch it? Verse 13. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Wait, what? Listen, either... Paul was directed to go to these Christians who were become Christians in Galatia because of some physical infirmity when he had not originally planned to go there, or he stayed longer because of this infirmity or this physical issue and he preached the gospel. He says, it was because of an illness that I preached the gospel from you. Now, there's been endless speculation in the academic literature over what this means. The NIV translates it illness. The Greek uh, reads, if you just did a literal word for word of the Greek, it's Weakness of the flesh. So the ESV translates it infirmity, right? And so, so there's a lot of options. People speculate all kinds. William Ramsey was like maybe the leading 20th century archaeology uh, who was a, his specialty was Asia Minor. He thought it was malaria because in that time, a lot of people on the coast got malaria and the way to treat it was to go inland up to, into the hill country where it was cooler and, and drier and you recovered from it and that's where these Galatians were. So, you know, okay, is it, was it malaria? I, I don't know, you know, there's nothing in there. Um, uh, one scholar on very thin linguistic evidence thought it was epilepsy. Uh, another guy I read thought it was migraine headaches. That caught my attention because uh, I used to struggle with migraine headaches. A lot of people think it was something with Paul's eyes Because in the text he said, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And then you get to the end in chapter 6, it says, look what large letters I write this with my own hand. Uh, People think it's because he could. We know in Acts 9 that he was blind at least for a little while. In 2 Corinthians 12, um, when he's talking about himself, but he's talking about him in the third person, this guy who was caught up into heaven. uh, And it says he heard things he can't express. It didn't say he saw things, he heard things. And so some people are like, hey, Paul had some problem with his eyes, maybe. But there's another way to read this. And and this is the view that has the most support by scholars. It's the one that I'm the most convinced by. And it's this, that since it's actually saying physical weakness, it's quite possible that what he's talking about is the result of his persecutions. In other words, he had been beaten. We know in Acts 14, he was stoned and left for dead. That might lead to some physical weakness. Right? They, they threw stones at him, and he was left for dead. And so, and so the, this idea is that he came, but there were, look, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you'll see the laundry list of all the persecutions Paul went through. It was, you know, 40 lashes minus one, however many times, you know, beaten with rods, stoned, all the, over, shipwrecked out in the ocean. I mean, like, the guy went through a lot. He was persecuted. And so the the view is that here he was, he's with them, and and he can't really do much because he's been beat up. Well, whatever it was, whatever the illness or the infirmity is, and we can't be 100% certain, whatever it was, here's the deal. What appeared to be accidental, what appeared to be bad, maybe it was bad, what appeared to interrupt his plans was used by God providentially so that the Galatians heard the gospel and they got saved. And we have the book of Galatians today. This totally changes how we see interruptions to our plans. 
right? I mean, interruptions, problems, they can just be opportunities for somebody to hear the gospel. And we've been talking, as we've been going through this series, with these little implications of the gospel have been adding up, and I started to kind of summarize them last week. We said, if you really let the gospel in, and I'll catch us up where we were, we said, number one, you're never going to look down on anyone ever again. If you really, why? Because you didn't save yourself. You, I didn't do one thing to save myself. I'm here, like we said last week, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's why I'm here. So I didn't say, how am I going to look down on you? I didn't save myself. If you really let the gospel in, you'll never be jealous of anybody ever again. Because the gospel says, I'm an heir. I'm a son of God. What could you possibly have that I could be jealous of? All the wealth of this world compared to my inheritance is chunk change. That is. So if you really let the gospel in, you're never going to look down on anybody. You're never going to be jealous of anybody. You're never going to be afraid of anybody ever again. Why? Because my Abba owns the place. And when I say the place, I don't mean this building. I mean this universe. And if you really let the gospel in, you'll never be controlled what people think ever again. Because you don't need people's approval when you already have God's approval. You know, we said last week, in the verse last week, it says, he, we are known by God. Listen, if God knows you and he accepts you, you don't need my approval to be okay. You're already there if you really let the gospel in. And here's the fifth one and the one for today. It's this. If you really let the gospel in, you will never see problems the same ever again. You'll never see problems the same way if you really let the gospel in because the gospel gives us great confidence that even when circumstances don't seem to be going our way, God is sometimes providentially moving behind the scenes to put us in a place to maybe meet some Galatians and give them the gospel. Man, at first it looked bad, and maybe it was bad, but God used it to create an opportunity for the kingdom. Man, if you let the gospel in, you'll never look at problems the same. Man, if you let the gospel in, you'll say, you know what? I don't work for my problems. My problems work for me. Because when something happens, you say, where's the opportunity? When something interrupts your plans, you go, okay, God may have something else. In 1991, um, I was uh, with YWAM, we were doing DTS, and we went on an outreach, and we drove from Elm Springs, Arkansas, to Cuernavaca, Mexico, which is south of Mexico City, in a bus that was vintage 1966, I think, or 68. This was a 91. No AC, okay? Great big steering wheel, manual, okay? We drove all the way down, and in the process of driving all the way down, doing mission work and driving all the way back, we broke down. 18 times. 18 times. We brought, one time we were, in, we were in the mountains right on Mexico City and we came up, and it was scary, you know, like around the edge. And we came around this hairpin turn and there was a car parked there and we couldn't get the bus through. And, and so the guy who's driving the bus, you know, it's a big steering wheel, he's like got the clutch to the floor. And, and Phil drove this bus. He knows it had the clutch to the floor and he's standing on the brake and it's taking so long his legs start shaking. So I'm like, oh, Jesus, help us. You know, like I'm praying. So all the guys got off the bus. We got around the car. I, true story. We picked up the car and moved it so we could get the bus through. Now, this bus broke down 18 times on this trip. 18 times. But do you know what started happening? Every time we brought, like, the, like the, I don't know, the brake went out one time. The clutch went out one time. We had to wait for parts and stuff. One time we were at a, a YMCA in Houston. One time we were at a McDonald's somewhere else. And then we were all through Mexico. We broke down. Um, and every time we broke down, there was somebody we got to give the gospel to. 
every time. There was something. It'd be like we would be at McDonald's and we'd be like looking for somebody. Well, we're here for a reason. And, and do you know what? It got to the point that we started getting excited when it broke down. Yeah, on the way back, we, we had a wrong, long time where we didn't break down, and I was kind of sad. We didn't break. Here's my point. Here's my point. Listen, if you really let it in, if you let the gospel in, you realize that you're already accepted by God because of what Jesus did. That means problems can't make me have a bad day. If you really let the gospel in, you will know problems don't have the power to steal your joy. Because my joy is not based on my circumstances. My joy is based on the gospel. I'm accepted by God. So guess what? It, it don't have any power over me. Problems have, you know, problems have power over you when you give it to them. Galatians 4, in my experience with with YWAM just summarized Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose sometimes God is at work and you don't even see it and I have more in my notes but I'm gonna stop right here